Um, and I just had the idea of trying to actually report on every team. I, I, I said, let me try to name every team in this post. That's not something that I've really seen done before. I'm not going to say it's never been done before, but I, I haven't seen that. Um, coverage tends to focus on the top teams. And then when it's not a top team, it's usually because some crazy story has happened to some mid packer or some team at the back. Welcome to the Dark Zone, an event racing podcast. This is your host, Brian Gatens. In event racing lingo, a dark zone is a time when due to darkness or safety, teams are paused on the course before continuing with the race. During that time, stories are exchanged, friendships are kindled, spirits are restored, and teams have a chance to prepare for the next challenge. We hope that you make good use of this dark zone. We're glad that you're here. Today we're joined by Brent Friedland. Brent and his wife, Abby, are the co-founders of Rootstock Racing. And recently, Brent stepped out of his comfort zone and acted as an online dot watcher for Expedition Oregon, Jason and Chelsea's epic race out west. On today's episode, Brent talks about how he dot watches, what he learned from the race, and what we could all take away from a race such as Expedition Oregon. He pokes into the scoring system, how teams hold it together out there with their sleep and their food, and he brings a lot to today's episode. So thank you, Brent, for being here. And best of luck as you and Abby tip the domino on the endless mountains in the next few weeks. Today's episode is sponsored by Strong Machine Adventure Racing. Based out of Maine on the northeast of America, Strong Machine brings premier events to everyone out there who wants to travel to that beautiful state. You can visit their website at strongmachinear.com. That's right, Strong Machine, one word, ar.com. Thank you for being a sponsor of The Dark Zone. And thank you everybody for joining us today. Sit back and relax. Brent brings us a good one. All right, listeners, today we are joined by Brent Friedland of Rootstock Racing. Uh, for those of you who know Brent, Brent is a, a prolific adventure racer, adventure race uh, writer. He thinks about the sport. He loves the sport. Along with his wife, Abby Perkis, Rootstock Racing is putting on the Endless Mountains five-day adventure race to be held this June in Western Pennsylvania. One of the three uh, North American adventure race series, Expedition Canada, which is right around the corner, we just had Expedition Oregon and Endless Mountains is coming in June. So, Brent, we're, thanks for coming on the Dark Zone. Uh, we're invited you on today um, to talk all things adventure racing, but to really talk a bit about your recent experience acting as one of the primary dot watchers for Expedition Oregon. Dot watching is growing because the technology is getting so strong that we're able to sit home and watch almost real-time updates of our friends and our loved ones and our comrades who are racing on the course. Talk a bit about your experience with the dot watching for Expedition Oregon. All right, Brian, thank you for having me on. And um, yeah, this this was a, a pretty cool experience. Uh, Jason Magnus and uh, Chelsea Magnus invited me and, uh, as you mentioned, uh, Barbara and Andrea Anderson as well to chime in with our uh, view from afar. You know, so they had all these great people on the ground reporting on the event firsthand. Uh, and we were asked to kind of share our insights. And I think all three of us come from different backgrounds in the sports. Uh, we're all kind of operating at different levels uh, of experience. And so I think we all offered something unique uh, when we were watching those dots. Um, so, yeah, it was a lot of fun. So here you are now. You're sitting in front of a computer. You have the live tracking that's up. Live tracking, as I said before, is working really well technology-wise. What strategies did you use to stay on top of the race itself when it came to being able to know how the race was going for the, all the races, but also for 
for your, your need to report on the race to the public. What did you do from your vantage point to do a good job of that? It's more than just watching the dots, right? Because watching the dots crawl across the screen is not really the most effective way to really understand the race from a distance. If somebody's home and they want to follow the race, how do they go about doing it? What did you do? Yeah. Um, so I think one thing that was important for me that I don't, I wouldn't say this is something I did, but you know, I, I know a lot of the people that were in the race and I know a lot of the teams. And so when I'm watching dots compared probably to the average viewer, um, you know, I, I actually can kind of imagine what's going on for some of the teams at the front. Um, you know, a lot of the teams that are kind of chasing those elite teams at the front, uh, and also a lot of the other racers in the mid pack and, and those that are just there to try to finish the thing. Um, you know, through our race directing and our, our travels for racing, we've gotten to know a lot of the teams. So, you know, I think that was an important part for me as a dot watcher agreeing to help bend cover the race really forced me to pay more attention to everything else that was going on. Um, you know, I think the big thing I did that I think the, the number one thing, maybe like the only real thing I did, um, that I think was, um, maybe a little bit different was I think on day two, I was starting to write up some kind of overview of what, what I was seeing. Um, and I just had the idea of trying to actually report on every team. I, I, I said, let me try to name every team in this post. That's not something that I've really seen done before. I'm not going to say it's never been done before, but I, I haven't seen that. Um, coverage tends to focus on the top teams. And then when it's not a top team, it's usually because some crazy story has happened to some mid packer or some team at the back. Um, often something negative, right? You know, some kind of uh, issue or injury or something like that. So I felt really strongly that I wanted to try to cover everybody. And I put that post up and it was honestly something I just did on, on a whim. And after that, I really tried to do that, not every single post, but, um, you know, more often than not, I tried to make sure I covered the, the field top to bottom. The race director published something called a schematic. Can you tell the public what, what is a race schematic? Yeah, you know, so in in even in some smaller races, but but certainly in expedition races, usually a week or two before the event, the race director will publish a one page document that has basically a visual schematic of the course, you know, it'll it'll tell you kind of usually the order of the legs, it'll tell you the length of the legs, usually a, a time estimate or a time range, um, ranging from the, the fastest estimate that they, uh, they foresee to, you know, maybe what it would take a slower team to do it, knowing that the slower teams are going to have to shorten the route along the way. And then there's usually some additional details, transition area uh, amenities and things like that. Um, so you get all that ahead of time. It gives the racers something to analyze and help them, you know, better pack and prepare. And, you know, if you're gearing up to dot watch, it's also something that can uh, uh, be a useful resource. For those who want to pay attention to a race, it's good to pick up on the schematic because you can begin to connect all the dots of the race. How much digging into the terrain and topography do you do away from the map? Do you look at Wikipedia articles about the area? Do you look at other races that were held there? What do you do with that? I will look at um, the one thing I really try to sometimes look at is, is maps, you know, especially um, uh, uh, USGS topo maps. Um, one of the hard things is sometimes, you know, what the racers have in this case, um, at least for big chunks of the race, I wasn't totally sure what their maps look like, you know, so that makes it a little more challenging to really 
project what's going on with the team when you don't know what they're actually working with. Um, so it's easy sometimes for us to be like, why aren't they going over there? And then you find out on the on the map that, well, it said there was a trail here that you didn't know about or didn't show you a road that you can see on a satellite image, but they have no ideas there. Um, yeah. yeah. And I think to that point and, and adventure races, for the most part, are also map junkies, right? We enjoy looking at maps and, 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 and pouring over them. I would recommend to any race directors out there that after the race starts, obviously, if they're able to, to publish the actual maps that the racers are holding makes that a much more interesting experience because you could take the actual map that you had that you could print out a copy of, and then you can look at the tracker. And some races have the tracker map be the racer map. Sometimes that works out there and off they go. Um, What did you do during the race when there were huge gaps of time in which the trackers weren't moving because teams were probably out of range or something was going on? Did you look at other parts of the race? Did you walk away from the computer? Like, how did you manage that? Yeah, I I honestly, I'll be honest, I tended to take advantage of those moments to walk away or, you know, if teams were on a section, um, you know, for example, that stage three paddle where tracking wasn't all that great for a lot of teams in there. uh, But there also wasn't a whole lot to see. There weren't really navigation decisions or anything like that. So there was this long block of time where there just wasn't a whole lot of action. Um, and while there was obviously a lot more going on on that water section than there is in a lot of races, um, typically with, with paddling, there's not a whole lot of race movement. You know, paddling is not the stage where you tend to see teams making up a lot of time, um, you know, or even losing a lot of time. You know, the the, the difference of of, of speed I guess difference of speed between top teams and mid pack teams isn't as great as it might be on a bike ride. So I think I, I kind of tend to just use that as an opportunity to take care of life. Yeah. That's a, that's a good point away from the, the dot watching the fact that water appears to be a bit of a great, a great equalizer. Mm. The fact that that's a place where if you're, if you're racing, that's yeah. not where you make your big move, right? The, the, it, the, yeah. that's where you, it's where you sort of hold on. It tends not to be. I mean, there are of course exceptions, right? You know, um, you know, if we're talking about a, a like a, a flat water lake, there's not a whole lot that's going to change. But, you know, in an expedition race where you might have a, a 60 mile paddle, right, that's a lot of distance. So even if there's not a, a, a big difference in speed between, say, a top team and, and a, a back of pack team, it will add up. Right. Um, you know, if it's a really big stage, I mean, of course, in this race, we know those of us that watched it, um, that whitewater section early in the race really, um, you know, it, it really changed some things for a couple of teams, right? So right. when you've got conditions, you know, or even a, a skilled paddler, something can go wrong, right? Whether it's, um, you know, the timing, you hit a, a whitewater section um, late in the day, right? You're tired, you're cold, you hit a sea kayak uh, at night. Versus the daylight, you know, things like that can can change things quite a bit. But overall, absolutely. Um, you know, I wanted to say one more thing, kind of based off what you were saying earlier. You know, I think dot watching. I mean, I can imagine some viewers, not viewers, listeners are are probably thinking, ah, this is not as exciting as someone just talking about Ben, right? Like, I'm definitely not as exciting as the Peak Pursuit team that you had on the other day. Um, but I would make a plug for people to. Um, look at dot watching as a learning experience, right? People that actually are racers and uh, especially people that are less experienced. Um, you know, I think dot watching can actually be a really educational experience. You of course don't have all the information, so you can also make bad judgments, but there's a lot to learn from watching teams race. 
looking back at Expedition Oregon and, and really kind of in, embedding yourself into that race and really being so deeply involved in it, what did you take away from it from an experience perspective? What did Expedition Oregon teach you? Because it was a lot was thrown at the racers. You had weather, you had big water, you had a long route, very hard. In your conversations about the race, either with Abby at home or with your friends about it, what do you think some of your takeaways were from the race in terms of learning? Yeah, I mean, so I don't think I'm going to actually answer your question directly, um, but it gets me thinking about something else that I was just pondering a lot. And, um, you know, I had a couple people reach out to me actually about our own expedition race, which we're, we're directing next month, the Endless Mountains kind of asking like a bit wide eyed, right. You know, is, is this what it's like? And, um, you know, I think watching endless mountain, uh, sorry, uh, expedition Oregon unfold. Um, it reminded me a lot of 2015 when we raced in Alaska, you know, and I think every once in a while you get a race like this, that is, um, that's really much more technical than your average race. Um, you know, it was a hard race no matter what. And it was obviously made much harder by, you know, the snowfall they had in the week before the event and the conditions during much of the race with additional snow and, and cold temperatures. That's obviously not necessarily what the race director was um, looking for uh, when uh, uh, they directed the race or designed the race. But there's a place in our sport for that kind of event. Um, you know, I think there are people that really want that, that kind of event. Um, and it's an event that I think will live in, uh, you know, the, the legends of adventure racing, you know, people will be talking about that race for a long time. And, you know, I think some people are still pretty shell shocked, I think from, from the experience, uh, mostly in good ways, but I, you know, I think down the road, it's going to be one that people are really proud to have participated in that said, you know, I do think, um, for newer people to the community, um, I think it's important to realize that, you know, as is true of all races, they all have different flavors and, uh, Oregon is a very particular type of race. Um, and it's not really, I think, representative of what a lot of expedition races are like. So for people that want that technical challenge that kind of want more of that, um, you know, uh, you're kind of on your own out there in the wilderness. It's a great event, right? Um, I think for some other people, maybe it's a, a good one to watch, but, you know, maybe uh, uh, there's other ones that are a better starting place. Um, yeah, there's no doubt with, with, you know, when Jason and Chelsea called America's toughest race, they're putting the cards on the table, right? Yeah. And, they're, and they're telling you what to expect when you get out there. And clearly a race such as Oregon, and I do agree, it's going to live in legend for a long time. Yeah, It is metaphorically and literally speaking, you're jumping into the deep end of adventure racing, mm-hmm. right? There's yeah. the big mountains, big weather, big challenges. We saw where, where Lars Bukahov, um, who is a, you know, a, a well-regarded, you know, winter guide himself adventure racer. He had a case of hypothermia that he's fine from. That took a lot of us by surprise because guys like Lars don't get hypothermia. Um, we heard stories about racers getting detached from their teams. Peak Pursuit found a racer out on the course. So yeah. clearly um, you're going to get that. To your point, for those listening at home who are considering doing a, an, an expedition level race, this race is on a far end of the spectrum in terms of difficulty and challenge and, and how and how muscular it is. That won't necessarily be experienced in other five-day adventure races that you see. But yeah. to, to Jason and Chelsea's credit, you, what you see is what you get. And it's going to be a hard, hard race. So let me pivot then for a second to, to Endless Mountains. And obviously, that's your race coming up in the Expedition Canada right around the corner. If someone were to, to watch the Expedition Oregon 
uh, I was using the word telecast. We're not there quite yet, but the, 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 the broadcast, if you will, of the show, what do you think they should take into Canada and endless mountains in terms of gear preparation, food, what, what will serve those racers best in those big experiences? Yeah. Um, it's a great question. And, you know, I think it's very difficult to compare, uh, one expedition race to another. I think it's a lot easier to compare kind of the, um, the sprints and even a 12 hour, even a 24 hour race. Those tend to be, you know, relatively similar. Um, uh, the big, uh, the big difference tends to be weather, right. You know, the temperatures and is it raining? Is it not right. Um, I can't speak too much about Canada. You know, I, I would expect Canada is going to be um, like a big, a big elevation race. You know, I think there's going to be a lot of vert in that race. Um, I think there'll be the potential for cold weather in that one as well. Uh, as I recall, I think there was cold weather in it um, last year when they last ran, uh, but I might be wrong about that. I might be thinking about Primal Quest that was also up in British Columbia a few years ago. I mean, it is still Canada. It is still, you know, the, our, yeah. our friends to the north, right? You're going to get weather yeah. out there. Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, and, and the water, right? So even if the even if the weather is relatively pleasant, you know, you're racing in a part of the world where the water is cold. Um, you know, when we raced in Alaska, it was, I think, July. Can't quite remember. Maybe it was late June. And um, it was quite pleasant in when you were out of the water, but we spent of seven days, it wouldn't surprise me if we were basically in the water for 48 hours of it. Right, right. And that's and all gla- that's glacial water. That's cold, yeah. barely but freezing yeah. water. Yeah. I've never been so cold and I know I would have been colder if I was in Oregon this week, but you know, Alaska definitely was a really tough race in terms of, of thermal control and it barely rained. Um, you know, so I, I think that I think water is always such an important factor that people don't think as much about. Um, and it's not just, what are you paddling in? It's, you know, are you going to be crossing through the water, right? Are you going to be saturated? Um, are the woods dense? You know, I know here in Pennsylvania, if it's wet out in the woods, it can be a sunny day, uh, but you're going to get saturated quickly when you're bushwhacking. And if it's not particularly warm, you can get very cold really quickly. Uh, once your once your clothes are saturated. So I think that's, you know, one of the biggest things, endless mountains will be different. Um, at least knock on wood, it should be different. Um, you know, June in Pennsylvania these days uh, tends to be the opposite. It tends to be um, quite warm, you know, so I think that you have a different challenge there with heat. Um, you know, I think that heat is going to be something that, you know, we all need to look out for at endless mountains. Um, personally, I don't know where I would air. Cause actually like I personally do better in the cold than I do in hot weather. But when you're in the cold, sometimes there's absolutely no way to get warm. Whereas when you're in the heat, uh, you can go find a Creek and sit down, you can stop moving and, you know, you know, soak something in water and put it on your head. There's ways that you can manage that. You can take right. clothes off. Um, it works. Right. So yeah, I yeah. think also, I think the thing to keep in mind is, and I don't know the temperature swings they had in, in, in Oregon, it was cold. Pretty, it felt like it was cold all the time when you watch that race. Yeah. And I, to your point, I don't know about Canada, but I do know, knowing the Northeast, knowing Pennsylvania, most likely the races will contend with temperature swings. They might yeah. have, it might be down at night. It might be down into the forties yes. and during the day it could be up in the eighties. And so it's the idea yeah. that you have to have, you know, thermal control is the word of the day. You have to be able to put clothes on and take them off as necessary. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, it's a great point. And um, you just don't know. Today, it's, um, you know, an absolutely beautiful low 70 day here in, in southeast Pennsylvania. Tomorrow, it's going to be over 90 degrees. And right. I suspect quite unpleasant. It can get quite humid when it's that hot. Now, I will say, you know, the Endless Mountains, um, it's not British Columbia. It's not the Cascades. Um, we don't have 5,000 foot mountains. But it is still a mountain environment. And, you know, I've been out in the Endless Mountains region um, in June, and I've seen everything from, you know, dry heat to hail and freezing rain. So it's it is still definitely possible, like you said, to see those swings, especially between day and night. So, yeah, I think you just you need to be really kind of dialing in your clothes. Right. And be prepared. Um, you know, I think another thing that that is worth highlighting, which I know our team uh, hearing some of the, the reports behind the scenes the last couple of days, something our team actually struggled with was sleeping. Um, yeah, I've week. heard that was the, the coming out of the race. The, the the how little sleep people had really was something else. And they still able to function. Yeah. Yeah, it was. And, you know, that was partly, again, like the conditions just created a course where it made it very hard to sleep. Um, That's not the racer's fault. But, you know, uh, do you have the right gear? I know there were some teams that, you know, didn't have kind of sleeping systems that really allowed them to comfortably sleep out out on the course. And, And that kind of forced them to sleep in transition areas, which are a bit hit or miss. Some people have good luck with transition areas, but for a lot of people, they're noisy and there's a lot of activity and um, it can be tough to sleep in those places. So, you know, I think making sure that you really have, you know, again, the thermal clothes system down, but then also a really good plan for sleeping. Um, You know, I think that back to one of your earlier questions, like, what do you learn? Um, Again, it's not something necessarily that I would say I learned watching, but I think it's something that was really apparent and worth highlighting for people that are not as experienced. You know, I think Oregon was a great display of the importance of sleep and um, the importance of, of good quality, intentional sleep. And I, I think Eastwind really modeled that. Um, and normally that's something that our team does as well. They just had a hard time executing it in this race. But um it's so important. And you can really kind of see how um, Eastwind benefited from that extra rest. Like, you know, when they were out of TA and they were moving, they were moving and they were moving well from start to finish of that race. Whereas most of the other teams, um, you know, you could see them really struggling once they got tired. You know, the pace fell off. They made more mistakes. Um, it's a fine line. You know, I definitely was wondering toward the end of the race, man, if Eastwind cut one hour out of one of their sleeps, might they have been there with Viterate at the end and uh, really had a sprint to the end, possibly. So you can sleep a little too much. But, you know, if they hadn't slept as much, they might have been 10 hours behind Viterate as well. And that's, so, all, and that's the magic formula, right? And it's different yeah. for every race. And what are you going to do? I know what, what I've seen over time and, and the sample size is small. I have seen a few teams that by virtue of racer challenge in the beginning, or they were caught in a dark zone that they took more sleep at the beginning of the race. And they appear to be more present at the end of the race that you see from time to time, there are teams that just skip sleep because they want to either, they want to get into a bigger lead or they want to bite into someone's lead. And all of a sudden they just, the last 36 hours, they just disintegrate, they come apart. And I think we saw that in Oregon. There were some teams at the very end that had just, they'd forgotten how to read their maps. And it had to be, it had to be exhaustion coming in. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we've all been there, right? I mean, we've definitely all been there, but um, you know, we have, um, (coughs) excuse me, a series of articles on our, our endless mountains blog. 
And one of those articles is specifically about sleep, right? And really kind of goes over different approaches to sleep. And so, you know, for the those newer racers that are looking to learn more, watch the dots, but, you know, check out an article like that. Talk to more experienced racers about what they do, what what gear they use to sleep. It's a really crucial part. What was your take on, on the different, on the various strategies regarding food that racers had used? I know the dots don't allow themselves to understand what they're eating and how they're eating, yeah. but what did you hear either, either, in conversation or from other sources, how did teams do with food over the course of the race? Was it a mix of real food? Was it a mix of goos and gels? I mean, it's a long time to, to eat. It's, it's a, it's a week's worth of eating you have to account for. Yeah. You know, honestly, I don't, I don't think I heard a thing about food. Um, and you often do, um, you often, you know, get an insight into what some teams are eating, but I can't imagine it was really any different than normal. You know, I think that most experienced teams know that for a multi-day race, you really need to get real food into your into your food plan. Um, if you're just relying on, you know, gels and bars, which you can kind of get through with a 24-hour race, you know, races up to that point, um, you can't do that in an expedition race. Your, your stomach's going to revolt on you. You're going to get to a point where you can't really look at that kind of food. You need something more substantial. So I've got to think that teams were, were kind of balancing that diet. But, you know, I also kind of wonder, because normally in an expedition race, it's not uncommon to pass through towns and see stores and often multiple times. Um, you know, I know some races, uh, even some of the top racers have brought very little food with them because there's so much on the course that they just go light and just buy stuff as they go. I don't get the sense that they saw much of anything. Yeah, I feel like, yeah, when they came back through the lodge, right, after they did that first lollipop section, they paddled across, they had a fire, they had food there. Mm -hmm. Um, And and as as you and I spoke about during the race, God bless the teams that after that crushing first two, two and a half days, got back to the lodge and realized in front of a warm fire with a meal, they had to go back out there and the race, and they were only like 45% of the way through the race. Yeah. So, yeah. so kudos to, I mean, anybody who, uh, who, who experienced raced, survived expedition, Oregon should be proud of that accomplishment. And the, the growth and the learning is just, has been incredible coming out of that race. Yeah, um, absolutely. I know you have your, uh, you have your, your fatherly duties lying in, in wait for you on the other side of that door behind you before we, we move on. And before we, we, we finish off the podcast, any of the thoughts that you had big high level things that you took out of your, your dot watching of expedition, Oregon. I was really intrigued by their scoring system. It was a bit of a unique system. So, you know, traditionally in uh, really any adventure race, but but in most adventure races, especially expedition races, you know, it's a it's a point to point course. Um, traditionally, you I mean old school racing, you had to get everything, and if you didn't, you were unofficial. Right. So the, um, the minute you missed one checkpoint, your race was over. That's right. Right. Um, now the sport has progressed quite a bit since those days. I mean, there are still, there's still a vocal minority that likes to, you know, complain that they wish that that's what it was. But, um, you know, I think a lot of race directors have figured out that, um, if you only have 20% of your teams actually finishing the race, that's not always a great look. It doesn't right. necessarily, um, and it gets complex because there's, that. there's, there's full course finishers, there's short course finishers. There's right. It's, it's a weird scoring system. Right. And so, and so yeah. Ben, so Ben tried to fix that. Yeah. So they had an interesting system of, um, you know, really assigning everything points, right. And making transition areas, um, the highest value, um, you know, so each transition area was worth a hundred points. And then they had kind of, uh, 
you know, I, I would think about it maybe as like a short course route. It was kind of maybe the more or less the most direct way you could go through the course. And those points were worth 25. And then there were additional points off of that route, which added more navigational challenge and a little more distance. And those were worth 10 or five. Some of them were worth five. Um, and it was a really interesting, I think, approach to it. I know there's already some interesting discussions online about the merits of that system. And I, I think there's there are some valid kind of questions about whether that's the best way to score a race. Um, and I know that Jason has commented publicly that uh, there are things that he would like to tweak about it. But, you know, I can say that Abby and I are are, are really intrigued by it and are intending uh, to adopt at least part, maybe not 100% the exact same system, but uh, at least part of that system for Endless Mountains. Um, and, uh, you know, we're hoping to work with our, our colleagues in the North American expedition series to help kind of standardize things a little bit in those kinds of ways. And I think that as, as I, as I would describe the scoring system to, to people who aren't familiar with it, I would say that the, what the race director does is that he or she chooses points along the course and assigns various point values to those checkpoints, yeah. transition areas, orienteering legs, whatever it might be pro points versus regular points. And then teams make the decision the points that they punch, they accumulate those points over the course of the race. And at the end of the race, they turn in their punch card and they have a potpourri of various points that they got, yeah. add those numbers up and points be time. And I think that's really what it is. And what it does, and I think it's a, and I, I saw this in Scotland and they, I think I, I Tara and James Thurlow did it somewhat informally because they want to, they want to keep you on the course and they want you to have a good experience. Yeah that they basically said, if we bring you forward on the course, you're still a, a, a racer. You, you have to finish by a certain time, but you're still a, a formal racer. I think that's formalizing that system and, mm -hmm. and, and giving a lot of flexibility to racers to make decisions. Because to your point, you know, in some races, you would miss there's 25 or 30 checkpoints in a race. You'd miss the fifth checkpoint. And all of a sudden you're either unofficial or you're a short course team, which is a little demoralizing when you look at a race in the face. Yeah. 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 I mean, I think that's all right. Um, I think the interesting, the one kind of big question that I think we've, we've talked about is, um, and I've talked to a few other folks about it. And I think some of the discussion I've seen, I think on our discussion group was about this issue is basically the question of if someone gets in a vehicle, right. Mm -hmm. Can they potentially manipulate that? Maybe not even intentionally, right? Like, I mean, I, I will be honest. Um, you know, I, I think that, um, they may get mad at me for saying it. I think our team got a little bit lucky at Oregon this week in that it was not an intentional strategy for them to end up um, basically bypassing the stage four bike. Uh, and in fact, they had no intention of getting in a vehicle, um, but they did end up being asked to get in a vehicle and, and they were driven to TA4. Um, and I know that that helped them, right. You know, being able to bypass that, that stage four, even though that was their intention anyway, um, you know, that was definitely a, a game changing thing, uh, compared to all those teams that went up into the, those snowy mountains with their bikes for 20 hours. Right. Um, and I think that's like the big tough question is, you know, if I put a team in a car and I shuttle them forward for one section, um, is it equitable if I put a different team in the car on a different section, right. I dock them both a hundred points, but maybe those hundred points are not in fact equal. Right. Um, so I think that's the big, to me, the big question, you know, I know some people feel like hey, I, you can score it that way, but if you get in a car, you should be ranked behind everybody else. Um, 
and you could still be official, right? So I don't know. That, I think that's that's the million dollar question on that one. Yeah, because the we had that in Scotland. We were a whole bunch of teams were putting a car and brought forward on the race, and they basically said we can't put you into this mountain range because you're never going to make the cutoff. You have a right. choice: either get in the car and stay inside the cutoff, or don't yeah. get in the car and your race is over. And yeah. to your point, but I, I respect the fact and, and credit to, to Jason and Chelsea that they're they're thinking about teams, keeping teams yeah. on courses, keeping points there. Um, in many ways, we're building a better mousetrap, right? There, there's never going to be a final solution. Yeah. That's but, right. But, yeah. but they deserve credit for, for doing that. And I, and I think Exhibition Oregon and I think Ben Racing should get a lot of credit for the race and, and, and in a variety of areas. Andrea, Barbara, you, their team offering the commentary, Dave Gedney with the videos that were coming out, the, the updates that were frequent, the quality of the tracking. Um, I think they created a, um, a relatively, a very, very strong immersive experience for the person at home yeah. who wanted to follow along. And, you know, it wasn't, you know, we remember the day before there were trackers, people would leave, go race. And we'd hear about the results five days later, right? This yeah. is where we're really getting a sense of what's happening out there. So, and I think that they're, they're on the cutting edge of what that's going to look like. And I think that the, the, the endless mountains of the world are going to follow along with that. I think that's kind of what they're doing and bringing it that way. Yeah. Yeah. And like I said, you know, um, Canada bend, um, rootstock, you know, we're all talking to each other about trying to figure out ways that we can, um, try to standardize things a little bit more than they are. Um, I don't think you're going to see, um, the events becoming the same, you know, I think they're all going to have a unique flavor to them. Um, you know, down to maps, right? Like everyone's going to do things a little differently, but there's also some things that we can at least, you know, try to get on the same page with, if not the exact same line. So, and that's, and that's a great thing about adventure racing is the fact that these are uh, affiliated organizations that are given the ability to, to create races in their own spirit, in their own vein. So mm-hmm. a bend is a bend, Canada is Canada, endless mountains, endless mountains, Iterra is Iterra, insert name of the race there as long as there's some standardization that makes sense along the way, everybody gets to put their own spin on the sport, which is what's great about the sport, right? It's not the same thing every day. Yeah. Yeah. That's absolutely right. Well, Brent, best of luck to you. Best of luck with endless mountain drive around the corner. All the best to the family. Thanks for joining us on the dark zone. Thank you, Brian. Great job as always. And I'll look forward to seeing you in the woods. Thank you, Brent, for your analysis and thoughts around dot watching in Expedition Oregon. Best of luck to you and Abby as you tip the domino on the Endless Mountains Adventure Race, which is just around the corner. We look forward to having you return to tell us all about it. Special thanks to Strong Machine Adventure Racing. That's right, strongmachinear.com for coming on as today's episode sponsor. Be sure to check out their website and see their upcoming event, the Maine Summer Adventure Race. Special thank you to the listeners for choosing to spend your time with us. This podcast will always remain free to its listeners. If you've enjoyed this episode, please pay a visit to your podcast streaming platform of choice and leave us a review. Best way to spread the word. Also, always feel free to reach out to me, Brian, at ardarkzone.com. Your feedback and guest suggestions are always welcome. Thank you, listeners, for joining us at the Dark Zone, and have fun out there.